Sometime in the late 90s, 97, 98, somewhere in there, a sermon I preached on a Sunday morning at our little rural Tennessee church touched on the subject of abortion. Now, the, the main point of the message wasn't abortion, best I can remember. I think it was only an application of a broader sermon. But in the middle of it, a lady stood and applauded something I said and and actually started applause throughout our little auditorium, which was about as scandalous a thing as you can possibly imagine having happened in our little quiet country church. Now, here's what you need to know about that lady. She absolutely could not stand me. She thought that the 32-year-old version of myself was going to be responsible for her little church to cease to exist, and perhaps I would be responsible for the downfall of all of Western Christianity. I had uh, gone to visit her father in the hospital as a peace offering one evening, and she spent, and this is not an exaggeration, she spent two hours outside of his room telling me what an awful pastor and an awful preacher I was. I've never had a higher moment of sanctification in my life. I just kept saying, I am one with the force, the force is one with me. Well, I am one with... This lady barely tolerated my presence in her life. And she stood and applauded something that I said on the subject of abortion. Now, I share that story because it highlights how opposition to abortion was a unifying subject in churches like Blue Valley 25 and 30 years ago, but not anymore. Last summer, we had people on both campuses refuse to enter our worship centers or get up and leave on the day that we strongly encouraged our church family to support an amendment that would have removed the right to an abortion from the Kansas Constitution. And there were even more concerned conversations with elders and staff. This is a political issue. Shouldn't we leave politics to politics? Or this is a women's health issue. Why doesn't our church care about women? Those were actual conversations that we had in our church. But the issue for Jesus' followers is neither political nor is it women's rights. It's about the image of God in the preborn person. And because that concept is an increasingly foreign one to folks even here today, it would be spiritual malpractice for us to avoid the subject on this series on the Imago Dei, the image of God in us. Now, if you've been present for this series, you'll remember that our lens for understanding the image of God is the person of Jesus Christ, who Colossians 1 tells us was the image of the invisible God. And on that basis, we have strived to show that the image of God is simply all that which makes us human, all that works together to make us human. And it's not to be confined to a single aspect of our humanity, like our ability to reason, or a, a single function of our humanity, like our capacity to rule over creation. You may also remember early on that I said great evil has been unleashed historically 
against groups of people when the image is confined to an aspect or function of humanity which is deemed to be deficient in a particular people group. And no other group has been on the business end of that evil more than the preborn. Since the defeat of value them both, the number of abortions in Kansas has risen 57%. There were 12,319 abortions in Kansas last year. Currently in Kansas, an abortion can take place up to the 22nd week. My, my third grandchild, my next grandson, currently is at 20 weeks. And I think that most of us kind of recoil at the notion that he is deemed to lack personhood. But what about at 13 weeks, the end of the first trimester? What about at eight weeks, the medical marker when an embryo becomes a fetus? What about at six weeks, when you have the first detectable heartbeat? Is, is the fetus a, a person then? What about the morning after? You see, as a follower of Jesus, all of these questions are different takes on the same question. At what point does the preborn person become an image bearer? That's the question. That's the ball game. That determines everything. Because to borrow a quote, if what resides in a woman's womb isn't a person, no rationalization for abortion is necessary. But if what resides in a woman's womb is a person, no rationalization for abortion is possible. And so, let's do what we have been doing through this series thus far and ask three questions. Number one, what did Jesus teach? What did Jesus, the image of the invisible God and the preeminent example of what it means to be human, teach? Which, by extension, is to say, what did Jesus know to be true about the preborn? Which, because he is God, is to say, what is true about the preborn? At which point, we have to admit for the sake of theological integrity, that Jesus never spoke on the subject. But Jesus not speaking specifically on a subject isn't the same thing as saying we can't know what he believed about a certain subject. And I believe we can know what Jesus believed about the nature of the preborn person. So let's start at kind of a 30,000-foot level and work our way down to the ground where we can learn from Jesus. For starters... Jesus taught that murder is sin. In Matthew 15, verse 18, we see Jesus uh, saying, For what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a person. Nestled right there, in the middle of a list of representative moral actions that defile a person, that qualify a person as a sinner before God, is the sin of murder. And that's really all that we need to say about that. Jesus taught that murder is a sin. In fact, the belief that taking another human life is 
evil is so ubiquitous in the history of human culture that apologists use it to support what is called the moral argument for God's existence. In other words, as evidence that God exists, we can look for a common moral code that exists across most cultures. And in all of those moral codes, murder is evil, a sin. But now let's move from 30,000 feet to 15,000 feet and consider something else we see Jesus teach, and it's this. Jesus taught the equal, taught equal human dignity. Equal human dignity. Now go forward a few chapters in Matthew uh, and find Matthew 19. Follow along as I begin reading in verse 13. There we read, Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them. And went away. Now that's likely a very familiar passage of scripture to most of us here. And we could go to other places to see where Jesus taught the equal uh, dignity of every human. But the presence of children here makes it kind of a natural place for us to land. And the scene is a simple one children are brought to Jesus to receive a blessing. This is a fairly common practice in the Judaism of Christ's day as parents would bring their children to prominent rabbis for the rabbi to lay hands of blessings on their offspring. But those closest to Jesus on this day, his disciples rebuke them. It's unclear whether he's rebuking the parents or the children, but they rebuke them. They attempt to turn them away. Why? Well, one chapter later, Matthew tells us that two blind men were along a roadside that Jesus was traveling, crying out to him loudly and repeatedly for the mercy of healing. And the crowd this time, not his disciples, but the crowd rebuked the blind men, basically telling them to chill in Matthew 20, 31. Rebuked, same word. Now, while we aren't told why the crowd rebuked the two blind men, it's not really all that hard to figure out. The crowd believed that the blind men didn't matter, that they were less than the whole people who were seeking uh, Jesus uh, and his attention. So, so we know why the disciples then rebuked the children who were coming to Jesus. They weren't old enough to matter. And both the blind men of Matthew 20 and the children of Matthew 19 clearly mattered to Jesus. Now, while the words, image of God, don't show up in these passages, we know from Genesis 1 that the image is the basis of God assigning value to persons. So the reason that God in human flesh, Jesus, the image of the invisible God, valued these children and valued these blind men is because he viewed them as image bearers. Jesus taught the dignity of all persons because all persons are bearers of the image of God. But now we get to the ground level where we ask if Jesus believed that preborn people are image bearers. Here's a better way, perhaps even the best way to ask the question, adapted from a question posed by our director of production and media, Aaron Smith. When did Jesus believe a person begins to bear 
God's image. The fact that he believed that they bore God's image at birth is frankly beyond dispute. In John 16, 21, Jesus said, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. That word human being, as translated by the English Standard Version from which we usually preach, is the best translation of the word in John, the Greek word anthropos, man. Jesus is saying that when a baby is born, it is a human person. It bears God's image. But what about before that? And again, we're back to the reality that Jesus didn't speak to it, but it really shouldn't surprise us at all that he didn't speak to it. It wouldn't have occurred to anyone in his day that he should speak to it. The whole idea of when a person became an image bearer just wasn't debated in Jewish life because they viewed it as settled in their Bible. They believed that what resided in a woman's womb was a human person who bore God's image. We have that Bible too. It's called, of course, our Old Testament. So they would have known, obviously, very intimately, the words of the psalmist in Psalm 139. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. But then here's the money verse. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Unformed substance is an attempt to translate a word from Hebrew into English that is best taken in context to probably mean me. So the psalmist is saying to God, you saw me, a human person, in my mother's womb before I lived a day outside of it. I mentioned Theological integrity earlier when I said we have to be honest and say that Jesus never spoke specifically about the status of a preborn person. But that same theological integrity requires that we admit that the Bible Jesus believed and as God authored makes it clear that Jesus believed that the preborn were image bearers and his teachings on other subjects just reflect that. And because that is what Jesus taught. No rationalization for the aborting of a preborn person is adequate. It is the murder of a human being who is created in the image of God. So in light of this, what do we see Jesus do? And there are a couple of things that I'd like to briefly point out. First, Jesus elevated the dignity of every person. One of my favorite examples of this is in Luke 17 when he encounters a group of 10 lepers. It's 
Unlikely, they were suffering from what we know in modern medical science as leprosy. At the time, that term was just kind of a blanket term used for a wide variety of skin ailments, ranging from leprosy as we know it today to various communicable diseases characterized by rash, such as measles and smallpox. All could be deadly. All could spread very easily. So anyone that was showing symptoms was pushed to the margins of society to protect the rest of the population from infection. And the social stigma was horrible. They weren't called sick. They were called unclean, meaning that they were not just outcast from their families and from society. They were outcast in their religion. They were prohibited from going to the temple and offer sacrifices. They were viewed as cursed by God. They were viewed as being less than human. And Luke 17, 14 simply says, Jesus saw them. Jesus saw them. Those whose society deemed literally less than human, Jesus saw and lifted up as image bearers. But there's something else that Jesus did that mustn't be overlooked. He himself became a preborn person. At the foundational core of the Christian faith is the truth that Jesus was God. That the writers of the New Testament believe this is beyond doubt. But the companion truth of his full divinity as God is the truth that he entered humanity as a human person. And it was as a human person that he lived a perfect life, died an all-sufficient death, and was resurrected in a human body. Now, remember that question I asked earlier, adapted from a question that, that Aaron Smith offered in our study of this topic. Here's the unadapted version. He asked with devastating precision, when did Jesus begin to bear God's image? If we know from Philippians 2 that he was God, we know that he made a decision to enter humanity as God, and we know that he was the man on the cross, and we know that he was the baby in the, the nativity of Bethlehem. Was there some point there where he was nothing? That doesn't make any logical or theological sense. The point at which Jesus became an image bearer was from his conception. And so the clearest action of Jesus confirming his belief that the preborn person is indeed a person, an image bearer, is that he made the journey into humanity from embryo to fetus to infant. So in closing, let's think through what Jesus would command to us in light of what we've learned. And clearly, Jesus would call us to act on behalf of the defenseless. The two most famous parables Jesus ever shared are the prodigal son and the good Samaritan. Now, you may have never thought of it this way, but the Good Samaritan is about bearing the image of God at its core. It begins when Jesus is being asked his opinion as to the Bible's greatest teaching, and he replies that the greatest is that you love God with your entire self, and the outworking of that love of God uh, with your entire self is to unselfishly and to sacrificially love your neighbor. And then a smart aleck said, well, then who is my neighbor? 
Another way of viewing that question is this. At what level does someone have to reach before I have to care about them as a person? And Jesus' answer is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the zinger at the end of it is simply this. The person who truly loves God will lift up the defenseless. And then he commands, go and do likewise. For far, far too long, go and do likewise on advocacy for the preborn has only meant put a sign in your yard. Uh, put a bumper sticker on your car. Vote a certain way. And there is no denying that this kind of advocacy has its place and has reaped some rewards. But we must do more, especially since Kansas and a host of other states have shown us that any political victories won may be very short-lived. Four years ago, our director of early childhood ministries, Dr. Tracy McElhatton, wrote a blog post offering 10 practical steps for actually living out a pro-life reality and championing the defenseless preborn. That blog post will be available on our socials and website this afternoon. I would encourage you to check it out. I like what she shared because it broadens our, our horizons beyond where they probably are right now. As you read it, I want you to notice that it challenges us to broaden the horizons of our political solutions. Chief among reasons women offer for seeking an abortion are financial ones. So, so being just as vocal about broadening family support policies as you are about overturning abortion laws can have a real and tangible impact on the numbers of preborn persons whose lives are taken. I want you to also notice that it challenges us to do more than just give and to vote. It challenges us actually to get involved in the defense of the defenseless. Volunteer at a crisis pregnancy center. Adopt, foster, support adoption and fostering. Come alongside a single mom. All of these things are ways of doing something that protects a preborn life. But let me close by saying this, by way of Jesus' call to us today. Jesus calls us to find forgiveness in himself. I know right now that I'm speaking to women who have obtained an abortion and men who have facilitated or even coerced an abortion. And every line of this message has been a knife in your heart. When I say that the only conclusion that has theological integrity is to conclude that abortion is murder, I'm telling you nothing. You know that it is, and you have felt the horrible weight of that every day of your life since. So what does Jesus call you to do? He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Coming to him obviously means coming to him in repentance. But those I've talked to over the years haven't had an issue with repentance. They've cried out for years for God to forgive them. But what they have been unable to do is to rest in Jesus' forgiveness. And Jesus says, come to him and find rest. 
Preborn persons are bearers of the image of God. The church of Jesus Christ must be their strongest advocates and defenders, especially as the cultural tide shifts away from their belief as, as persons. We're going to have to do more than we've ever done before on their behalf. But let us also do more to let those who silently carry the horror of what they've done know that Jesus has already carried that burden for them to the cross. And help them know that they can find rest in Him if they will surrender all of it to Him whose blood is sufficient for everything. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.